All right, well, uh, today is Palm Sunday, and we thought, uh, we just taught the triumphal entry about, I don't know, seven or eight weeks ago in the book of Matthew. So rather than um, taking the actual Palm Sunday narrative from the scriptures, and if you're new to the church and new to the Bible and you have no idea what I'm talking about, I do apologize for that. Uh, but there's a, there's a story connected to the Sunday before Resurrection Sunday, before Jesus raises from the dead. So rather than teaching through that again, I want to take the opportunity today and establish theologically and missionally or missiologically why next Sunday, Easter Sunday, is so important to us as a church. So we're going to walk through uh, just a, a short section of the book of Acts, and we're going to try and understand what it is that we're doing and how we can carry out the commands that are on us, given to us by Jesus. Uh, as we do this, I hope that over the, the last couple of weeks and leading into this next week, you are preparing yourself for Easter. Uh, we are doing the physical prep for Easter. We're spending a lot of time getting uh, the stadium ready, getting our teams ready, filling bags with welcome cards and cookies and all of those kinds of things. We're doing the work in advance physically. And my hope is that uh, each of us takes on the responsibility of preparing spiritually for what's going to happen next week. Uh, we believe that our battle is not against flesh and blood. So we could do all of the setup. We could do all of the work to get a, a day planned. We could do everything that it takes to facilitate a Sunday in a stadium. Uh, but if we are not um, engaging in the spiritual battle, then we're not doing the work that God has invited us into. We're doing a physical thing, not a spiritual thing. So in addition to our physical prep, we need to be preparing spiritually for all that God wants to do. And the way that we do that is by pressing into prayer. And part of today, I'm going to be challenging you at the end, I'm giving you the conclusion before I give you the message, is going to be to challenge you specifically to pray for people in your neighborhood where you live, in the schools where you pick up your kids, in the places where you go on a regular basis. It's critical that we be praying for the people that God wants to draw to himself. He asked us to do that, and that's part of our obedience to him. So I hope that you're preparing spiritually, and today is a, the goal for today is to help us prepare spiritually for next week. So with that, a little bit of context to the passage that we're going to be going through. It's in Acts chapter 2. It's in the very beginning of the book of Acts. So Acts is a, is a great book, and, and in retrospect, it would have been a really fun idea for us to go from Matthew straight into Acts. We did that a couple of years ago. We taught through the book of Luke for about a year and a half, and then we went right into the book of Acts for about a year and a half. It was a great combo. It's meant to be that way, uh, but we totally blew it. We didn't do that at all. So I'm teaching this message in hopes that maybe it, uh, it, it um, makes up for that. Peter and the disciples... Uh, at the end of the book of Matthew and beginning of the book of Acts, they hear from Jesus. He says, go and make disciples of all nations. He tells them uh, that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He gives them this huge missionary call. You're going to go and take the name of Jesus, my name, to the nations, to the world. You're going to go. But then he tells them to wait. Before you go, Wait for the Holy Spirit. This is a Holy Spirit-empowered mission. It's not designed to function without the Holy Spirit. So Jesus says to his disciples, do not try this without my Holy Spirit. That's essentially what he's saying to them. 
He says, go and wait for the Holy Spirit. So they obey Jesus, and they go back to Jerusalem, and they find a, a home. They go up to the upper room of that home, and they spend time praying. They uh, wait for the Holy Spirit. They don't go out on mission. They actually go in. They eat together. They, they find a replacement for Judas. Uh, they, they spend time praying and fasting and worshiping together. It's a beautiful scene. And then what happens is on uh, the day of Pentecost, uh, the Holy Spirit descends on that group of people that are waiting and praying. This isn't just the 12. It's a larger group than the 12. And the Holy Spirit comes into the room and they can see the Spirit of God. It says it was like tongues of fire. So imagine like fire in the room and kind of lashing out. They're seeing this happen and simultaneously they start speaking to each other in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the Spirit fills them, and they're speaking to each other in a different language. That's going on, and it creates such a ruckus in this house that people outside of the house hear the noise. There are a lot of people in Jerusalem. I told you this was the day of Pentecost. Pentecost is a huge celebration. It's connected to the Feast of Booths, and it's a big opportunity for people from all over the place to come and visit Israel visit Jerusalem. Were we able to get that slide up? This is a, a picture of where uh, the, or the image, there we go. These are the places where it's mentioned that people are coming from to Jerusalem for Pentecost. So from everywhere that Rome extends, and even places that Rome doesn't extend, so Libya and Egypt are not a part of the Roman Empire, and Arabia is not a part of the Roman Empire, uh, and you see the Parthian Empire over there. Anybody down for some Western Civ? Should we go into this for about a 200-year span? Um, this is a huge deal because people are coming from all over the place. Jews specifically are coming from all over the place to celebrate this incredible feast. It's a big deal. So the crowd in Jerusalem has swelled. There's a huge noise in a house. Imagine a, a relatively small urban environment. That's Jerusalem. A lot of homes kind of piled on top of homes kind of near the temple it's it's not a huge town but the population uh, usually quadruples from about 250,000 to uh, over a million around Pentecost so a lot of people in town for this and they start to hear a lot of noise coming out of this house and they come and gather around this one house the apostles spill out onto the streets still speaking to each other in tongues. They kind of spill out onto the streets, see the crowd, and Peter stands up and starts to preach to everyone that's there. Now, all of these people, as Jews, would have spoken Hebrew. Peter could have spoken in Hebrew to them. Uh, all of these people, as part of the Roman Empire, would have spoken Greek and probably even Aramaic. There's a lot of languages that they all would have spoken. It's kind of like going, we went to Dubai a couple of weeks ago, and in Dubai you can walk around and you can basically speak English to anyone. They all speak English because it's sort of like the common acknowledged business language, even though everybody's from another part of the world. That was the same kind of thing with the Roman Empire. Lots of people from lots of places, but there were common languages. But the miracle of this moment is that Peter's preaching in one language and everybody's hearing him in their native tongue. So if they're from Cyrene or Mesopotamia or Asia or, or Elam or wherever they're from, they are hearing it in their native dialect. 
It's a really wild moment. I can't even imagine what that would have been like to know, to stand there and say, there's no way that this guy speaks whatever language that I speak back home. And I'm hearing him, but also that guy who doesn't speak my same native dialect is also hearing him in his native dialect. The uh, conclusion of the crowd is these guys must be drunk, which is sort of a weird conclusion to come to, how this miracle is happening, and I'm hearing them speak, oh, they must be drunk. Somehow alcohol induces uh, foreign linguistic skills. Um, (laughs) Peter stands up and starts a sermon by saying, brothers, uh, we are not drunk, which I've never had the opportunity to start a sermon like that. I feel like maybe I should start, that that should be the beginning of every sermon. (laughs) So I'll let y'all know I'm not drunk, (laughs) in case you were wondering. It's a great sermon starter. And then Peter goes on to preach the gospel to all of these people using the Old Testament, but he's bringing the gospel through a specific lens, and that's the lens of the Holy Spirit. Peter preaches the gospel through the lens of people receiving the Holy Spirit and that that is ultimately a desire of God that all people would receive the Holy Spirit. He uses a prophecy from Joel that the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all flesh. This is a huge deal. And so Peter's preaching this message and saying, this is being fulfilled in your midst. He gives them this great call, and then he preaches to them. As he preaches to them, people are cut to the heart, and that's where our text is going to pick up today. So if you have your Bibles, go to Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 37. Acts 2, 37. says this. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? I've also never had that happen where a sermon was so pointed that people just stood up in the crowd and said, well, what do you want me to do about it? All right. So if you ever feel the need, that's fine. What shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. That is Peter's call for people to respond and then a promise of what will happen upon their response. So we're going to break it down in that way. So let's talk about the the proper response. Now I could have taken time to preach on the entire sermon because it is a powerful one, but honestly that's probably uh, two or three weeks worth of preaching on my end to explain a sermon that probably took Peter about 15 or 20 minutes, but that's kind of the way that modern preaching works. But Peter preaches this message And he gives them enough information about what God wants for them that when they hear this message, it says they were cut to the heart and they said, brothers, what shall we do? I want to know what should I do about this? I don't know how much preaching you guys have listened to. If you've ever been in a place where you've heard a message that just ripped you to shreds, that just took you to a place where you didn't even know what to do with the things that you were hearing and trying to grasp and understand. We had the weirs over in our family room the other day, and they said, we were listening to a sermon in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and I looked over at my husband, and he was in tears, and he looked over at me, and I was in tears, and just, I mean, that happens. There are just these powerful moments 
where we hear the word of God and it just destroys us in a really good way. It just opens us up. And that happened to over 3,000 people that were standing out in front of this house. They hear the message of the gospel and they say, I want what you're talking about. So they stand up and they say, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter's call to them to respond, and we'll talk about each of these things, is repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So let's break this down a little bit, what this call to respond is. The first call to respond is the word repent. Now, repent is an interesting word in our time. It's sort of gotten a a bad name because a lot of people like to write it in angry scrawl on a big poster board and stick it on a piece of wood and shout at people with that word. Uh, I've been to multiple youth conferences before where there were people out in front of youth conferences shouting at us, the youth workers, to repent. They didn't like something about us. I don't know. Repent. They were shouting at us. Like really, Devin, you've been there, right? Really genuinely angry shouting the word repent. And so that's typically our impression of the concept of repentance is that it has something to do with anger. The crazy thing about the word repentance is that it is not an angry word. Now, it is inherently judgmental, and I will fully acknowledge that, but God is an extremely judgmental God. Just in case you're wondering that, God is not non-judgmental. He loves holiness and righteousness and goodness, He hates sin and wickedness and all things evil, and he differentiates between the two, hence he is judgmental. He is making a judgment on what is good, righteous, and holy versus what is evil, wicked, and bad. Does that make sense? All right. So in that, repentance is a call to turn from your evil, wicked, selfish lifestyle and to respond to the things that God is inviting you into. The the thing with repentance is our tendency is to yell it. God's tendency is to present it as an invitation. Peter preaches a message, and these guys say, I want that, what should I do? And Peter says, repent. God is giving you the opportunity to turn away from your sinful life and to step into a life with him, a holy life where you are blessed and encouraged and built up and receive the Holy Spirit and your sins are forgiven. Repentance is invitational in its very nature. God wants you to turn and be a part of his story and he gives you the opportunity to do that. If we take repentance and make it into a bad thing or a shameful thing, then we do the gospel a disservice. If we take repentance and we make it into a a blessed thing, an invitational thing, a gracious thing, then we honor the nature of the gospel. Every single one of us should want to repent every single day of our lives. There's a great book by a Puritan author, I think it's John Owen, called The Doctrine of Repentance. It's an entire book on the concept of repentance. And basically, it talks about how the deeper you go into your own sinfulness, the more you know and acknowledge and recognize your own sinfulness, the more glorious the cross is, and therefore, the more worship comes out of you, the more joy comes out of you, the more gratitude comes out of you, that repentance is one of the core elements of knowing God because it separates you from him 
as truth should. Our tendency is to say, I'm not that bad, and we shrink the gap between us and God. I'm not that bad. Look at all these other people. Read the news. I'm not nearly as bad as them. One of the things that the gospel does is it helps us realize how truly wicked we actually are, and that's a good thing. Then you start to be more grateful of a God who saves. You start to acknowledge the fact that salvation is a huge deal, not like God just kind of nudging you over the line. You were almost there, and God just kind of clicks you over that last click, and you're like, all right, thanks, God, for the assist. I had it most of the way. You just kind of you just kind of help me out there. That is not salvation at all. The chasm is so much far greater than you could ever imagine. And so these guys hear this and they say, what should we do? And Peter says, repent, turn. You have that opportunity. Do that now. And be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. This is a huge call. And we spent a lot of time last week talking about this concept of baptism. And the concept of baptism, to reiterate, is that when you come to faith in Jesus, something happens spiritually. There's a lot that goes on theologically in youth. We say theologically, but the Bible teaches us that there are multiple things that happen internally to your soul when you come to faith in Jesus. Salvation, redemption, reconciliation. If you guys want the preview of next week's message at Easter, it's going to be about reconciliation, the idea that we were in a broken, fractured relationship with God and the the cross and the resurrection have, have created reconciliation between us and God. These are huge deals. Sanctification, that you are being made holy. Justification, that you are declared righteous. All of these fancy theological words are there because it's people for the last 2,000 years that have written about all of the powerful and amazing, rich things that took place in Jesus' death and resurrection. And they're kind of summed up in the concept of salvation. And so in baptism, what you're doing is you are declaring publicly the things that have gone on internally or in your soul, you are identifying with them. So Paul teaches about this in Romans 6. He says that when you go under the water, it's like you're being buried with Jesus. So uh, Paul says it this way in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So in baptism, you're saying what was Matt Larson died with Jesus on the cross. And now I've been raised to walk in the newness of life. That's the language that Paul uses in Romans chapter 6. So if you've not been baptized, if you're a follower of Jesus and you've not been baptized, there is absolutely no reason why you should not be baptized. It is a part of your journey, your salvation journey, to testify outwardly about all that's gone on in you through Jesus Christ. So, and I'm saying that big picture, but I'm also saying that specifically to you. If you've not been baptized, you need to be baptized, and you should talk to us. We would love to do that. We had an awesome moment. I taught this Great Commission passage last week. I said, you have the authority to baptize. We get a text, was it that night or or Monday night? Uh, Whenever we get the text, uh, Kyle Rogan baptized Katie Scotchless in a hot tub somewhere. There was a big crowd of people, and they texted us this video and said, hey, you preached it, and it happened. And I was like, yes, that is amazing. That's beautiful. <laughs> this call to baptize is about faith in Jesus. So when Peter says, be baptized in the name of Jesus, 
That's significant for a couple of reasons. Reason number one, uh, there, let's, well, which reason to start with? Reason number one is that there was already a baptism concept in Judaism. When they were getting ready to go to the temple and to make sacrifice, if they had done sinful things, there was a practice of self-baptism in a pool, almost like a bath or a shower, like a, like a cleansing experience. They would walk themselves into the pool and dunk under, and then they would go and they would do their temple sacrifice. But it was all done in self, and it was done repeatedly as a cleansing act. Peter is inviting them to a totally different baptism. Don't be baptized in the authority of the temple. Be baptized in the authority of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, declaring that once for all, you are cleansed by the finished work of Jesus. And so you go into that water, but here's the other thing. Baptism is not a self-baptism thing anymore. Be baptized. He told his disciples, go make disciples, baptizing them. There's now a shared experience, a body experience, like body of Christ, multiple people involved experience. We're not just diving into a pool and saying, hey, oh, I got baptized. Somebody else walks you through this baptism and immerses you in the water and raises you up as Jesus did for you. And you're, you're baptized into this family of God. So Peter's invitation to them is to repent and turn from the, the things that cause them to crucify Jesus, the things that cause them to be hard in their hearts towards Jesus the Messiah, the disbelief that Jesus was the Messiah. Turn from your sinfulness and then put your faith in Jesus and be baptized in a new and fresh way to demonstrate that Jesus is your Savior, not the temple. Jesus is your Savior. That's the invitation. And he says, for the forgiveness of your sins, and this is where we start to get into the promise of salvation. What happens when you're saved? When you put your faith in Jesus, and this is, by the way, why we do things like Easter, why we challenge you to be mission-minded in your lifestyle, to uh, live among your neighbors, among your classmates, among your workmates, wherever you are, to live with Jesus on your lips that you're speaking and living the gospel because Jesus' ultimate desire is that everyone would experience the forgiveness of their sins, that you would experience the grace of God to no longer be guilty for the sins that you have committed, are committing, and will commit. That the wrath of God would be poured out on Jesus instead of on you. So repent and be baptized, which includes faith, which includes belief, for the forgiveness of your sins. Peter's inviting them to experience something that was previously not possible, that you can have total forgiveness, total security, a, a, a clean heart before God, a right standing before God. Peter's invitation to these people is to experience an entirely new relationship with God than they have ever experienced before. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. It has been made possible through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And then he says this. He says, And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
So here's a, um, this is, I'm going to take a moment and kind of do a brief theology of the Holy Spirit to get everybody caught up. Uh, we talk a- around this a lot, especially going through the book of Matthew, but I want to talk directly at it. Uh, if you are a follower of Jesus, a Christian, a disciple, you have given your life to Jesus, you're born again, whatever the phrase is that captured your attention, that caused you to give your life to Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit of God. That is a part of our salvation package, right? When you get a new job, there's like your, your benefits package. You have all the things connected to it, your salary, your whatever. There's a salvation package, You get the body of Christ. Some of you don't want it. You get the body of Christ. You get the word of God. You get the spirit of God. You receive things upon your salvation and you need to know that you have received the Holy Spirit. Every one of you that has said yes to following Jesus, there's not one of you that doesn't have the spirit of God with you. Now, I want to make something really clear that I think is hard for some of us to wrap our heads around. What did Adam and Eve have in the garden that we feel like we're missing? It's the presence of God walking with them in the cool of the day, right? Adam and Eve standing with the presence of God. And the devastation of the fall was that the presence of God was separated from humanity. That God cast man out of the garden and he removed himself from the earth and there was separation. This is why the message of reconciliation is such a big deal that we're going to hit on next week. I can't wait. But there was separation. What Peter is saying is that the act of you being saved is doing something totally unique in all of human history. For uh, a number of thousands of years, since uh, from, from Moses constructing the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, and the Spirit of God would rest in that place, and Israel would carry the Spirit of God with them. It was with them as a nation. The Spirit of God went with them as a nation. Israel, they were the people of God, and they carried the presence of God with them. Now, Ezekiel prophesied, sorry if you're getting caught up on this, that the Spirit of God had left Israel. And so there was an empty temple, a temple without the presence of God. Not everybody believed that, but Ezekiel prophesied that that had happened. And we see that fulfilled when Jesus says the temple's going to be destroyed. It's like, how could a temple with holding the presence of God be destroyed? Well, the temple no longer held the presence of God. When Jesus died, the curtain that separated the outer courts from the Holy of Holies, well, that tore in two from top to bottom And nobody died. There was no, like, indication that the Spirit of God had been exposed. The Spirit of God had left the temple. And Jesus preaches a message that is critical for us to understand. He says, destroy this temple, and I will build it again in three days. And everybody's like, how can you build the temple in three days? It took him six years to build it, yada, yada, yada. I'm yada, yada, yada in the building of the temple. Because Jesus says... I will rebuild it in three days. He is talking about a new temple that is being built that is his body. Well, what else is the body of Christ? We are the body of Christ. Paul writes in Ephesians that you are being built up into the temple of the Most High God, that you, the body of Christ, are his new temple. And every time somebody comes to faith in Jesus, they are another brick, so to speak, another piece of that temple. Paul writes to the Corinthians and and tells them that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, we use that in youth groups to tell them not to lust and, you know, fool around and things like that, but it goes way beyond that, right? It goes way beyond that. Think about that for a moment. Something happened inside of you that was so powerful and profound that it took you back to Eden. Your body is a dwelling place, a tabernacle, a temple of the Holy Spirit. Where you go, the presence of God goes. He is with you. He is in you. He is a part of you. So there is no place that you go in this life where God does not go with you. My dad used to tell me stories of being a teenager in the 60s where uh, youth groups would tell them, don't get caught in an R-rated movie because what if Jesus comes back again and finds you there? That would be awful, wouldn't it? That's terrible theology. That is terrible, terrible theology. The presence of God is with you everywhere you go all the time. As a follower of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit and he never leaves you nor forsakes you. And behold, I am with you to the very end of the age, Jesus said. Now here's why we're doing Easter. Part of the gospel is salvation. Rescuing people from from hell and bringing them to heaven. But that is not the exclusive story of salvation. One of the disconnects right now that exists in our world is uh, there are a lot of people that are like, yeah, I'm not so sure about heaven. I'm not even sure I really want that. If God is X, then I don't want to be with him for all eternity. Maybe I'd rather be in hell. Maybe I'd rather be separated from God for all time. I'm not even sure I believe that, but I don't even know if I want that. In a weird way, heaven has sort of lost its selling power. It's a strange culture that we're in that that could be true. But right where we are right now, that is true. What has not lost its selling power is the presence of God being with you. Right now, one of the most common phrases that people will say is, I'm not religious, but I am spiritual. You may have even found yourself saying that. The idea of spirituality is like all-time high. People have no idea what it means. They don't know what they're articulating when they say that they're spiritual, and I would agree with them. Everybody's spiritual. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our souls are spiritual one way or the other. I don't care if you're the atheist of all atheists. You are spiritual. But God's desire is not that you would be generic spiritual. It's that you would experience his presence as you were created to experience his presence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He declared it good. He created man and woman, and he declared them good. He breathed into humanity the breath of life and then joined them in the garden, and there was peace and harmony between Yahweh, creator, and his people, and it was good. That's what God is making possible through Jesus Christ is that we can be fully reconciled to God to the point that we are his temple and he is with us. And just to, just to, to make this, you, you may have even said this before, like God can't be in the presence of evil. 
I don't know if you've ever heard that or if you've ever said that or if you've ever believed that, that, that God cannot be in the presence of evil. And what that does is when we say that, that starts to then confuse our theology about the Holy Spirit because we think of ourselves as evil. I am a wicked, broken, fallen human being. I fall short of the glory of God. I am sinful. And you know what? True. You are the chief of sinners. Christ came to save even you, you wicked, evil person. All y'all. And you, and you guys can say that about me. You are a wicked, evil person, Matt Larson. And Jesus Christ came to save sinners, even you. But somehow in our identity, something has changed. Where while we continue to commit sin and be fallen people and stumble our way through life, the work of Jesus is so complete in us that he can simultaneously call us holy and blameless and he can place in us the Holy Spirit, call us a temple of the Holy Spirit that is equal to the holy of holies of the Old Testament. Is this messing with your paradigm at all? Then Peter goes and he tells these Jewish men and women that are there for the celebration of Pentecost, this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. This promise being the Holy Spirit. I have 12 minutes to tell you the most important part of this message. And here it comes. And I want you to pay very careful attention. If you've struggled to pay attention up to this point, snap out of it because this is critical. Absolutely critical. First of all, this promise is for you. Peter, looking at all of these men and women, saying, you need to hear this. God wants you to have his Holy Spirit. He is up there like one of those people at a basketball game with a t-shirt cannon waiting to just launch the Holy Spirit into your life. That is what he wants. He wants every single one of you to experience the Holy Spirit today. That is his stated desire. You, the Holy Spirit is for you, Israel. You don't need to go to the temple anymore. You don't need to do the ceremonial cleansing and washing. There's a new baptism. He wants you to have his Holy Spirit instead of going to the temple. You are the temple. That is what God wants for you, Israel, today. God wants that for you. He wants to lavish on you today his Holy Spirit. And then he says, and it's for your children. Now, when you hear children in uh, anything in the Bible, you think generations, because children is a symbol or a, a word that communicates the generations. This promise is for you, and it's for your children. This is not a one-generation thing. We're not one and done here. This is happening now, but it's also going to happen to the next generation and the next generation. How will they experience this Holy Spirit? Well, they would repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. In Jesus Christ, they could experience this as well. This is why we don't hold to like a, like a familial passing on that just because you happen to be in a Christian family, then all of a sudden you get whatever blessing that your parents received, that it is an individual decision or choice to follow Jesus. It's not just handed on through lineage, but it is to be given to your children. And here's something just that I want you to know. Parents, future parents, grandparents, everybody in this room that may have kids in their life at some point, your job is twofold, and we tend to focus on one, and I want to encourage you to focus on the other, and both. 
The first one is that we have a call to raise our kids as good members of society. Obedient children, faithful children, kids that will, uh, you know, not be rude or crass or coarse or all of those things. We want to raise up kids that are contributing members of society. That's a call on all humanity. That's common grace. That's common decency. That's just life as people. Raise your kids up to be decent kids, all right? We tend to focus on that. Even raising them in the word, we still tend to focus on making decent children. And that's a weird statement, but bear with me. Sometimes even in our parenting, we have a tendency to want our kids to be obedient and decent people, and we use the scriptures to try and help get them there. And so we we do a lot of scripture memory. We do a lot of uh, just like Sunday school, Bible classes, Jesus Storybook Bible, Narnia. We do it. All right, we do all of those things to try and help give them a worldview and a framework for growing up as as ultimately decent people, God-fearing people. Well, here's the other part that I think we are afraid to live out, is that we are called to raise spirit-filled children. Like, your desire as a parent is that they would experience the filling of the Holy Spirit. When your kids get baptized, when you, when you teach them about Jesus and you show them the way and you invite them to experience baptism, are you telling them about the Holy Spirit? Are you showing them with your life and your faith that they are now as a seven-year-old, a nine-year-old, a 15-year-old, whatever, that they are filled by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, gifted by the Holy Spirit to carry the name of Jesus to the nations? Are you giving them vision for life in the family of God or are you teaching them through the scriptures to be decent kids? There is a massive difference, massive. And I want to challenge you to think differently about raising your kids. This is the promise. It is for them too. The Holy Spirit is not just for you and someday they may figure it out. The Holy Spirit is for you and it is for your children. God wants them to be filled by his spirit and to carry the name of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is one of the harder things to teach because a lot of us feel like we don't even know. I could, you know, can I even explain if I'm filled by the Holy Spirit? Do I feel filled by the Holy Spirit? We struggle with this, and so therefore we tend to keep it away from our kids because we don't really know how to articulate it. We don't know how to live it out. Well, let's figure it out and teach our kids because one of the things that's happening and it's been happening for about 30 years, and you can talk to Phil about all the stats, is that there is a wall There is a wall right at about 18 years old where kids just run away from the church. You may have experienced it. Your kids may have experienced it. People run into this. Young people run into this wall and they have no idea how to engage the church. No idea how to engage the gospel. No idea how to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and mind. And they just smash up against that wall and say, you know what? I'm just gonna not. I believe, I believe we have an opportunity to do more than simply teach them a good way of living through the scriptures. And please do not hear me dishonoring the scriptures because they are critical. We, we do family worship as a family. We're going through the book of Colossians right now trying to get ready for this. We try and spend time in the scriptures most days. Like this is, this is part of our rhythm. I love the Bible and I will teach my kids the Bible. Do not hear me dishonoring that. 
but it is a word-spirit journey, and if we're teaching them the Bible without the Spirit and not calling them to be filled by the Spirit, then we're going to get a bunch of, uh, potentially we're going to get a bunch of empty faith out of our kids. wasn't the message, but maybe that was the message this morning that you needed to hear, and I just want to challenge you and encourage you to take that. Here's why we're doing Easter is the next one. And for all who are far off. This was a huge statement to Israel, huge. These people that were listening to Peter talk were Jews. They had a picture of everybody coming to Israel. They did not have a picture of Israel going to everybody. Jesus had given the apostles the Great Commission. All these people hadn't heard it yet. Peter's preaching a sermon that says that the Holy Spirit is for you and for your children. Those two just make perfect sense. Oh, yeah. Holy Spirit is for Israel, and it's for the generations that follow. And for all who are far off, these 3,000-plus people are sitting there saying, whoa, (laughs) no, 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 no. How can the nations be the temple of the Holy Spirit? That, I get it for Israel. I don't get it for the other people. When Peter says that it's for you and for your children and for all who are far off, he is communicating to them that every human being on earth is rendered qualified to be a temple of the Holy Spirit through the finished work of Jesus. Every one of them. The challenge to us, because we are the far off. I mean, unless you're hardcore Jewish, 100%, you are not, you're in the Gentile category. And we have, some, we have some Jewish people that are a part of the family here, and I love it. But honestly, most of us are in the Gentile category, the everybody else. We're the far off. So we're like, all right, success. The gospel's come to the far off. We're here. But here's the thing. One of the tendencies of the church today is to create a new version of the Jew-Gentile, and it's the Christian everybody else. That God's grace and mercy and kindness is for the Christians, and that everybody else is out there, and we'll see. TBD. And the reality is that if people are denying Jesus Christ, they do not get to experience the grace of God through Jesus Christ. That's that's the reality. That's true. But God's desire is still for them, and we have to adopt his posture. So when you think of, uh, let's just talk about sort of maybe the hot-button issues. You have sort of the LGBTQ community, so the, the, the transgender, gay, just everything in that category. You sort of have the church standing polarized against the LGBTQ community and saying, yeah, they are outside of what God really wants. We're not, I don't think you're saying this personally. I don't think anybody's articulating that with that level of clarity, but it's sort of like the political, societal picture that exists. And Peter's sermon is saying, that the Spirit of God is, is for them. They're far off. It's for them. So how do we help them receive the Spirit of God? That should be our mission. That should be our, that should be our tangible desire is to help them understand who God is and what his stated desire is and that he wants them to experience his grace and be filled with their Holy Spirit. Okay? Now, whatever racial tensions exist, again, maybe not per se in this church, but you go places and there is a very white-focused Christianity or other places in the world and there is a very uh, ethnocentric view of the gospel and Peter is blowing that up, saying you can't think that way. You can't say it's for us and not for them. It's not possible. It is, I'll just say this, it is impossible to believe the gospel and to continue in racism. It's impossible. It's not 
There's, there's no framework for that. If that's built into you, if that's somehow passed on to you down from generation to generation, it's something that my family had to struggle with a little bit. My, my granny's side came through Oklahoma, and they deepen our history. There is some rampant racism, and over the generations, we have had to squeeze that out of our family so that that is not the gospel and that does not represent how we believe or feel or what our framework is. You can't do it. You cannot stay in that and believe the gospel that's preached. It's for those who are far off. You could walk through every major issue, every major topic, every major struggle that exists out there that quote-unquote evangelicals and whatever people group are dealing with. You could walk through CNN. You could walk through any place and find, yeah, the gospel's for Democrats. Just throwing that out there. In case you were wondering if there's still that divide, that is not existent. If you've ever come here and waited for some kind of political commentary, I, I choose not to comment specifically because I want to make sure that everybody that walks in these doors know that the promise of the Holy Spirit is for Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, Socialists, Nazis, any political party that is out there, the Holy Spirit, God desires that they would be filled with His Holy Spirit and come to faith in Him. This is, this is critical. Now, we get that this is for everyone. So when we go out there and we preach the gospel, it needs to be in our hearts and in our prayers that this gospel is for everyone. That as you walk your neighborhoods and pray, you look at each house and you think, wow, God wants that household to be filled with his Holy Spirit. That's his stated desire that my promise of the Holy Spirit is for all who are far off. And you can walk through and you probably have neighbors that you like and neighbors that you don't like and you walk by the house that's dirty and it's got weeds in the front and you think, wow, the Larsons really live there? And then you walk to the next house <laughs> and you say, okay, these people are weird but God wants his Holy Spirit to fill every human soul in that household. This is our missional theology. This is what has been given to us and we need to carry it out to the world. And with that sense of invitation and open-heartedness and love and care and mercy and kindness and grace and truth and justice and all the things that are true about God, we need to carry this promise to the world that's why we're doing next Sunday. But how foolish would it be if we just said, all right, check that off. We did Easter. We preached the gospel. Now we can go back to studying the word and being a church. That, we don't do that. We're choosing Easter to do it this way, and then we choose the rest of the year to be diligent and disciplined people who carry the name of Jesus into the nations. Let me uh, check real quick and make sure I get all my challenges in. Sorry. All right. Three things that I want you to do this week in preparation for Easter. And then we'll be done. Uh, Shannon and the team, why don't you guys come on up and start getting ready. Uh, this is like an actual homework assignment because I want you to, to do it for reals. Uh, number one. I want you to, I mentioned this already, I want you to walk your neighborhoods and pray for people. 
So if you, uh, wherever you live, apartment complex, house, wherever, um, I want you to, this week, once, twice, every day, whatever it is, I want you to walk your neighborhood and pray for each house. And what are you praying for? You're praying for the promise that God has for them to be carried out. That that household, every member of it, would be filled with the, with the Spirit of God. That's his stated desire. So just walk the neighborhood and pray. You don't need to know the people. You don't need to know their names. You, you don't need to have any even understanding of who's there. You may walk by houses that you're like, yeah, I've never really seen them before. Move on to that. No, pray for them. Even if you don't know them, even if you've never seen them, pray for them. Pray for their household. Pray that they would receive the promise that God has for them. Okay, so that's assignment number one. Uh, number two, wherever the place is where you get more than a, a half moment with people, picking up your kids from school, that's probably my biggest one. School and soccer are the two biggest places that I get like time with people. Those are mine. Whatever yours are, uh, I want you to actively, as you are engaging people, be praying for them. Even say, as you're saying hello, you can have two conversations at once. I hope you can. I have like seven at once. I hope you can have two at once. Uh, while you are there and you're saying, hey, how's it going? Or talking about March Madness or talking about whatever you are talking about. In your mind, in your heart, you are praying, God wants you to be filled with his Holy Spirit. God wants you to experience his promise. Just be praying that for them. Just be praying over them that they would experience the promise that God has for them. And then lastly, as you see these people and you're praying for them, I want to encourage you to be bold and open your mouth to speak Jesus to them. That may be telling them your story. That may be inviting them to Easter. That may be asking them if they've ever studied or believed or understood anything about Jesus, whatever it is. I think the Easter invites a great opportunity, especially if you're new to this game. I think it's a great way to just open that door, but speak Jesus into their lives. That's your assignment for this week. You made me like, that's way too, that's way too specific. I, I did that on purpose. I went way too specific on purpose for this week. So here's how we're gonna wrap up our time. I apologize for preaching so long. Um, we want to worship Jesus and we want to respond to Jesus. Uh, the way that we respond to him is through our worship. We sing, we take communion, we give offering, and we pray. Those are the things that we do to respond to the gospel being preached into our lives. We sing and declare these things back to him. Uh, we take communion together, remembering his finished work. We give offering as a, as a discipline, as an act of obedience to uh, remind ourselves that all things belong to him. Uh, and prayer ministry, we encourage, we lift up the saints, we prophesy, we love to just minister to people in the spirit of God. Uh, our prayer teams are stationed in the back and they will be available. Uh, just an encouragement again from last week, if you wouldn't mind taking communion by kind of coming up the center aisles and then going out the sides just so that there's some semblance of people flow. And uh, don't wait for the holy second song to take communion. Um, it just maybe start whenever. So, <laughs> all right, let me pray for us. Uh, Jesus, thank you so much for your word, for it being preached into our lives, for your gift of the Holy Spirit, uh, for baptism. Thank you for repentance. Thank you for this incredible invitation to experience your promise. We love you, Jesus, and we ask your blessing 
on this household in your name. Amen.